0: Hi everyone, it's Paula Diana and this is Unleashed, the Game Changers. Today our guest is the ultimate game changer, in my opinion and the opinion of many of us. She's a hero. She is none other than Gina Miller. Thank you, Gina, for being here with us today. It's my absolute pleasure.
1: I mean, it was very kind of you to invite me and I look forward to our chat.
0: I think you have so much to tell us. I love your story. I love your courage because you always dare. You are never afraid to get out and speak out. And recently I read your book that by the way I suggest to everyone, Rise, it's your story, and it's really touching because it comes. You comes out with your personal story, not only your public story. So I would love you to go through something that really changed your lives and made you the change maker that you are now. Oh, that's such a big question to answer.
1: But it started with my upbringing. I think I can't remember being any different it's the values that my parents instilled in me in particular my father said you know we are here to help others um he was a lawyer he was uh, fought for social justice human human rights he was a criminal barrister in a country that still had a death sentence so you know defending somebody um really mattered because it would be their lives so he was literally defending their lives and growing up in in such a, a an environment where you learn and you're nurtured to care for others. I think it's so important because you learn to see people as equals, you don't see them as others and you don't always put yourself first. And that's the thing, I think I always grew up with that feeling that it was a duty that I had and it was just the right thing to do. So throughout my life, that's what I've done. And it's interesting you say I appear fearless because I actually don't think of myself as being fearless at all. I think because I'm so frightened No, no, I think I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of what happens when we stay silent. I'm frightened when we don't speak up for those around us. And I'm frightened when people in positions of power manipulate and behave in a way that destroys life rather than, you know, is responsible. So it's actually my fear, the things that keep me up at night is the things that make me speak out rather than thinking of myself as being fearful. Fearless, sorry. I think of myself as being fearful rather than fearless. Um, that's very interesting. And, and, and that's the thing that keeps on driving me. And, you know, when you have children, you know, it changes you because you then want the world for them to grow up in and live in to be one where they don't have to live in fear, either for the color of their skin or their education or or the fact that um, they may want to pursue a career where they're being discriminated against. You just want them to live a happy life where the world is a fairer place. So, you know, it's that mothering instinct of fighting not just for your children, but fighting for the world that they will live in as well.
0: I love this. Uh, you are so right. You know, I'm a mother as well. And I saw how much I changed in becoming my mother. And I truly believe that we need more female leaders in this world, because women, they nurture, you know, their, their children, they, they, they love them. They don't want to send them to war. They don't want to see violence, you know, against them. They really want a better world for them. Of course, fathers, the good fathers as well now. But as you know, since centuries, millennia, I mean, women were the ones taking care of children and taking care of the family, while men were going outside working. So it's very important what you said. Yeah, I mean, I'm
1: not I'm not taking away from fathers because, as you say, good fathers. There is, you know, a male role model is actually a really important thing for young men. It doesn't necessarily have to be their father, but you know, a role a male role model is just as important as their mother's love. Um, so you know, teaching you us to reach out to each other is very important. But we can teach them different things. So you know, a mother teaches different things from a father. But also, it's not just um, parenting. I'm saying that being personally as a mother, but I do think that women, we do have a different way of thinking. I've often said, you know, when I'm asked in business, if, um, you know, you fill a room with women, would you get better outcomes, better decisions? I'm not convinced you'd necessarily get better decisions. I think the way we come to those decisions would would be different. We would analyze more, be collegiate rather than you know, that peacocking way of thinking, I'm thinking that I think this is right. I think we do more work to get to those, to this maybe the same place um, that we don't know. But I think the process of getting there, the thought process would be different because sure. we would analyze it more. We overthink, we all overthink everything. Um, we, we, I just think the process of, of getting there would be more robust and therefore hopefully the decisions we come to would be more resilient. And, and it is that thought process that I think is different when you have women in a room and also by the way I don't believe in 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 sort of uh, you know this whole idea of making us better than it's got to be about equality it's got to be about you know having you know we all stand together shoulder to shoulder not in front of each other and blocking each other's way because that way we that is the aim that is surely the aim is for us to be an equal society not putting one above another
0: Sure, but also women, they tend to be more diplomatic than men. <laughs> Many studies, they found out yeah. that men, they, they tend to go to war, like, you know, immediately they go on fire. And so it's good to have a, a more diplomacy, I think, you know, in our current interactions and normal ones. So I, I think, think it's really so interesting where we are at
1: the moment with this um, coronavirus. If you look around the world, there are incredible women Coming to the fore, and if you listen to their voices and the way they're responding to crisis, the tone is very different. It is actually very noticeable if you look around in New Zealand, in Scotland, in the EU. Um, you know, if you if you look at the women speaking in these in countries around the world where they're they are the head of their government, they have a different tone. I mean, I loved um, in New Zealand. I don't know if you know if you listen to. Uh, Jacqueline, some a speech to children when she said in lockdown, um, the tooth fairy and uh, you know, uh, I think it was at Easter time. So the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy are still going to come even in lockdown. I thought that was just, you know, it's very unlikely that a man would be saying that as a leader. But you know, sure. it, even in business, I've I started my first business in '96 and. I remember at the time when I was talking about these things, I was talking about us using a different language in business because we shouldn't put on a different clothes just because and a different conscience just because we're in the world of business. You know, We should behave the same way as we do with the same levels of responsibility and care for our customers and using words like that. And I remember being told, oh, Gina, if you do that, then people think you're like a mama and papa business. They won't take you seriously. That's not how businesses work. You know, And we still have some of that now. Where you're supposed to behave in a particularly in a completely different way if you're in positions of power, and I never I've never got that.
0: I mean, why would you behave I differently? Well. I don't agree. I I actually think that women they have to stay true to themselves, especially if they get power. So we don't have to imitate men. We we can be different. We have to be different and actually put on the table the values that we cherish the most. So like caring and you know compassion. But what about the period uh, in your life where you went through a lot of uh, hate. Unfortunately, uh, I knew already, uh, reading the newspapers, but uh, reading your book, I was quite shocked uh, because you also write about a lot of the messages you were receiving. And I was shocked about all this hate. Do you know if uh, it was mainly from men? Because I'm, I'm just, just curious. Or it was both by women and men in the same way?
1: It was, it was the whole period of the last three or four years has changed every part of my life and and my family's life and the irony is of lockdown now i'm sitting you know as where we have been the last few weeks is that we have in effect been in lockdown for three years because we changed our lives. I stopped going out. We stopped going out. We would put put on a disguise. I would put on a disguise, if you like. If I was going out to the supermarket, I'd put baseball hats. Um, you know, I tried to not be recognizable. So I was defending and, and putting on masks, if you like, but for a different reason, to save my life. Because every day, my family were being threatened. And... I could have never envisaged receiving a letter because that's the whole idea that was online. It wasn't just online. People sought out my office and sent me the most disgusting parcels. Um, You know, I I received, uh, you know, uh, feces in the post saying, this is what you are. Um, I got, I remember the day I just, I was stunned and had to leave because most of the things went to my office. I had to leave the office because we have an open plan office. And I just went to the toilet and cried because the letter said and i didn't know if it was true it said we know where your children go to school we found out your husband is jewish your ethnic minority so your children are mongrels and they'll be taken and killed and you don't know whether that's true or not and i didn't know whether that was true Um, And so I straight away, you know, I was being looked after by the terrorist squad. So I straight away got on the phone and they said, no, we'll put security. The kids won't know. Um, And then they said to me, but, you know, we can only operate at a certain level because you're not what's called a public person. So you can't get our full protection. So then I had to hire. But, you know, that's just the rule. So I had to they tried as much as they can to sort of push the boundaries. But I had to then, you know, have full time security so the cost of that on top of the cases and everything else carried on for years but it's that feeling of, of of thinking today could be the last day I see my children or my family and you know somebody went to jail we've got another one ongoing there were eight what's called cease and desist um there there are many many but it's your question about if they were male and female but predominantly men um I have to say what I found str- extremely upsetting it was um from not just, if you like, English white men. There was this idea that as a woman of color, I should know my place even from different minorities and that I should shut up. And somehow I was making their lives worse because people would look at them differently. So it was, it was nuanced in a way I didn't expect, but from the sort of more right-wing British, it was for men and women it there was it was almost equal there wasn't a particular you know sort of older white male it wasn't like that it was across age groups across gender um you know it it was a deluge and i think when i start um i took out 15 what's called ipso um complaints to to the publication against um media because the media were really stirring it because they'd say for example foreign-born gina miller But they wouldn't say, you know, they wouldn't write foreign born Boris Johnson because he is. But for me, it was always tinged with that bit of, you know, you know, making sure that it was uh, appealing to particular um, ideology or or thought process from the right. And so, you know, things were brought up. They even sent people to my father's village, three and a half thousand miles away to find out any dirt on my family. And I remember sitting in one of these um ipso meetings where we were sort of being see if we could come to an agreement that they would take down a story or at least amend it to change it and they said i mean joke he thought it was a joke from this particular editor and he said but Jeannie, you made our lives so easy to become you know uh, avatar or if you like the figurehead of hate and i said this This wasn't shocking about
0: unbelievable
1: I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, oh, well, you speak too well. You went to um, private school. You, you know, you're black. You're a woman. I mean, you have everything. You're, you he said you're like the Barbie doll of hate. And so we just kept using you. And, I just, and he was sort of half laughing as he was saying this. And I said to him, do you realize what you did? Do you realize that you actually put my children and my life in danger? If something had happened to me, it would have been at your doorstep. Sure. He's he sure. But he stopped and he said, oh, but never got that serious. And I just uh-huh. couldn't believe that they were not reading because the complaint I made in particular is when a story is online, you have all the comments underneath. And papers, believe it or not, media don't moderate the content, the comments because they say they haven't published them. So the if so ruling is that if you moderate them, if a publication moderates those comments, then they're responsible. If they don't moderate them, they're not responsible, which is the craziest problem. ruling. Yeah, it's crazy. We should change this. I mean, has... Completely crazy. But, you know, you'll see in, underneath. So now lots of publications don't actually monitor them. So they can't be responsible. So you, that's why you see now a huge amount of misogyny that's risen against actually women across the board, be they experts or, you know, in politicians. I mean, I think what's going on against women is we're now at a point, obviously we're seeing what's going on. I'm sure we'll get onto it with Black Lives Matter. But I think the level of misogyny against women now, we've gone back 30 years. We've gone backwards in such a massive way.
0: No, but uh, you you, you mentioned Black Lives Matter and it's true. In my opinion, sexism and racism, they are two forms of oppression that are similar, and they, we can't fight one without fighting the other one, because both of them, they're the result of the patriarchal society and the patriarchal culture. What do you think about that? I think that both sexism and racism
1: are sort of built into the apparatus of our society, be it in, in education, in employment, in media. So yes, it's important we have these demonstrations, but actually everyone has to look at their own backyard, be they in business, at school, wherever, and think, how can I fix it where I am? How can I dismantle racism that's in my my workplace, my backyard, my neighborhood, and actually start speaking out and fixing it? Because if people can do that and come together, and if you like a a stream of consciousness, that's when we really wash away racism. Um, and sexism and all the isms, if you like, that are out there. Uh, but unless we take responsibility, it's not good enough just standing up for the one day. And I think what Black Lives Matter to me is it's created an opportunity for us to look in our own backyards and think, well, it's not, we can't pull this off anymore because you know we will have these, uh, if you like, boilovers into civil disorder and and lives being lost. Um, you know, the other thing is domestic violence. We don't talk about violence against each other and discrimination against each other and the injustice against each other enough? Why do we have to only have these conversations at a time of crisis? They should be built in to our lives and the way we live and work every single day. Um, And but we're not brought up that way. And that's why, for me, a lot of this also starts in schools. I would completely change our uh, educational system to include human rights, civic duty, empathy, you know, all the things uh, that that we don't really teach in school values. You know, it used to be the day when um, a lot of that was being taught by, you know, parenting, parenting circles, families, but family structures have changed. So somebody has got to pick up that responsibility. And I think it's our educational system that needs to do that.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. But what do you think about what is happening now in the United States about uh, after the death, uh, the tragic death of George Lloyd? George,
1: George's death has become a symbol of so many other deaths. But it's the, I think the thing that moved people was hearing the actually hearing him, the recording of him losing his life. We heard him, his life ebbing away in those breaths and in his breathing. And I think that is the thing that's really captured it. The quietness, in an odd way, of him losing his breath has created this loud call for change, which was inevitable because the brutality and the way politics has been uh, used in, in, under this uh, president in the US has been to stir up hatred, to stir up old hatreds and old, uh, it's, it's like old wounds have been reopened because he's playing to a particular audience. He's got a political agenda and he's using people and he's using black people and ethnic minorities to uh, win him support in voices that were actually becoming more out of fashion, if you like, and were being pushed down and saying in modern society, we don't think like that. You know in a civilized society we don't treat each other like this and we pushed those ideologies those languages those thoughts onto the fringes of society and he brought them straight back into the middle as acceptable and actually the same has happened in the uk you know in the uk when i 30 40 years ago the things i'm hearing now i never thought i'd hear again you talk about you know some of the abuse i get but you know being told that the worst thing that the UK ever did was to get rid of the slavery to bring in the slavery act you just think what I mean I've been repeatedly told that and you just think where
0: still did this come nowadays, from still nowadays they,
1: they keep oh repeating. the other thing about the coronavirus which is odd is that actually it's given people other things to concentrate on so not only has it's easier for me to go out and my family now to go out when we can, because now we're all in this together, supposedly, but, um, you know, we are to some degree all in this together, but also the, um, a lot of the, um, hatred died down. A lot of the, uh, vileness died down. I have to say though, in about the last couple of weeks, it started back up again. And I'm curious as to why that is. But there has definitely been a resurgence of hatred and and uh, the targeted abuse is coming back. I haven't quite figured out why. Um, I don't know what they're fr- It's almost that they're frightened of something and I don't really understand why. Um, perhaps this is just because um, I haven't looked at the data. I like to look at data and see exactly rather than just going on perceptions. But at the moment, I'd say my perception is that some of the um, supporters of this government, and particular our, this prime minister we have, uh, Mr. Johnson, in UK, are fearful of him losing popularity and of them not performing so well. And so they are trying to go after those people who will be critical and will come up and, and it's So it's not just me, but a few of us, we've noticed that there's a lot more abuse coming towards us now. And that's just my perception at the moment, that maybe they're frightened of us speaking up too much.
0: That's really interesting. But I know that you keep speaking up. I know that you never stop. and <laughs> That's actually a relief because I think everyone should take you as a role model because no matter how much abuse you get, but you are still there willing to say your truth, willing to just speak in a, in a very polite and calm way. So you're never aggressive. You're always very, very uh, respectful.
1: I think what's really interesting is that um, I think the um, abusers, if you like, don't get me. If they actually understood my life and the number of times I've had trials and tribulations that I've nearly lost my life. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a victim of domestic violence. I write about it in the book. Actually it's that chapter that chapter, nearly got the book. Ba- um, um, The lawyers were frightened about it, but obviously we proved that I could prove it. So therefore we got published. But uh, um, you know, the, when you have been to a place where somebody who is supposed to love you actually tries to break every part of you, your thinking, your heart, your body, and you feel as though you're drowning, that you have nothing. You can't think. You can't be you. You've forgotten who you are. You feel as though you are a broken vase, if you like. You know, you used to be this beautiful thing, but then you're just shattered into pieces their abuse is not going to get me get to me having been through something like that. Um, you know, I, I might put myself back together, but those scars I have are actually, I remind myself of my scars and my scars mean that I will keep on going. I won't let somebody take that away from me again. I won't let them tell me who I can be, what I can say, where I should be, how I should dress. You know, nobody's going to take that away from me ever again. So those abusers actually in an odd way fuel me to carry on because I think, carry on then because you're not affecting me. What you're showing in a way is that you're quite worried about me. So in an odd way, my mindset is that it fuels me to carry on. And and I say to lots of people, lots of women in particular and young women or whatever age, but you don't have to do a big thing. You can help people, You know, it's that that ripple, that ripple of hope that you know Robert Kennedy talked about that we can all do, it take, it's sometimes it's just the small things that matter to people. You know, if someone's crying on a, on a park bench, we don't know if they're contemplating suicide, if they feel the most loneliest person in the world at that moment, just saying, stopping for a minute and saying, are you okay? Could be the words that just save them. Those three simple words, are you okay? Could be something that changes somebody's life and makes them feel part of a community, that somebody somewhere cares. And that moment can take them away from despair. And so it's not the big things. Don't ever think, and I think sometimes people overthink when they want to try and do something. They go, Gina, how do I become an activist? How do I become a campaigner? How do I go out there and make a difference? And I say, by being the best person you can be, and caring, and being kind, you are already a campaigner and activist.
0: I love your message. It's, it's the small things in life that matter, the small steps. We have to be like this, yeah, all of us. And we have to be the change we want to see in the world. as Mahatma Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and I think to, to the other thing
1: I'd say is, don't forget um, to include your children in that. Because I said, going back to the, the very beginning of the interview, I mean, what we teach our children is what they will then teach their children. And so we have to remember that responsibility. And, and the one thing as well, which I find very strange, and I, I laugh at my girlfriends and my, my um, male friends as well, who are parents, and I say, do your children really know who you really are? Because quite often, we sort of tell our children a really airbrushed version of our lives. And I say, no, 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 tell them warts and all. Tell them your true self and your true story because actually, it helps them understand more who they are But it also will make you closer because then they can see that failing is okay. Getting things wrong is okay. Because if they grow up thinking you're perfect, you know, everything you do is is wonderful and you've you've supposedly got there easily,
0: then they'll think that's how
1: they're supposed to live their lives. And that's a lot of pressure to put your children under, to think that they have to be successful and get everything right. Um, You know, we learn more from mistakes than we do from successes.
0: It's true, you're so right, especially from suffering. I think when you suffer a lot and you suffered uh, uh, definitely a lot in your life, you, know, you become more empathetic towards other people. I, I noticed that. And also I, I admire you because you, you had the courage to speak openly and write uh, uh, about uh, the domestic violence and domestic abuse that you were a victim of. Because it's very important for people to understand that domestic violence is everywhere. It's not only in houses of uh, maybe, you know, poor, uneducated people, as this is the common, uh, you know, uh, thought. It is not. It can happen to every one of us. So I think
1: it's one of the reasons I wrote that chapter, actually, because there is this myth that it's weak, uneducated, stupid women that become domestic uh, victims of domestic violence. And it's not just violence. It's actually coercion. It's it's the mind games. And I think that's something that is very much in middle-class society. And I know lots and lots of women who are frightened to speak out. And, and some of my girlfriends, again, I have some girlfriends who were worried about me speaking out about this when I started to a few years ago because they said, people will look at you differently. And I said, that's up to them if they want to. But my message is that every woman who suffers from, or men do as well, suffer from domestic violence they just must not see themselves as a victim they should see themselves as they were something precious as somebody wanted to have but then wanted to own and so actually you are special you are it's not that you are weak that's not why you end up being um, a, a victim of domestic violence you end up being there because the person who's trying to control you or own you sees something sees a spark in you that they want to own or break or change you know if you didn't have that spark. They probably wouldn't do it um, so you know it, it's trying to get w- women and men to see themselves differently but really really importantly is to understand that domestic violence is not just about physical it really is the mind games are just as dangerous I mean you know things like being told that your family don't love you anymore your girlfriends might be jealous of you the little whispering in the ear that happens that sort of cuts you off from those around you and isolates you You might not know those things are happening or the little, um, you know, things like, oh, I don't really like you when you wear trousers. You should wear skirts more often. Or when I come home, it'd be nice if you changed and got into something prettier. There's all those sort of things that build up and you have to be aware of them. There are signs. There are signs that build up to that sort of behavior before it gets out of control. You need to start noticing the signs in your partner, the way they're behaving towards you. It starts small and then it builds up because if they get away with it, they just try the bigger and bigger things. So there's a lot to unpick when you look at at, at domestic violence.
0: But in your opinion, what we should do uh, in order to stop domestic violence, to prevent domestic violence? uh, If you were now uh, um, a member of the parliament or our prime minister, what
1: would you do? So one of the things I have actually been working on, I was pleased they brought it back, is the domestic violence, uh, the, the domestic violence bill. But it, it unfortunately there isn't enough about coercive behaviour in there. But we have to um, train police because the police are not trained to know to spot domestic violence. But it's not. I don't think it should be just the police. I mean, I would very much train doctors because people need to confide. Victims will need some, a place to confide or go to because we've cut back on the refugees, uh, Refugees, we've cut back on the charities. You know, they need people in community they can trust. And you know, I would work with GPs because GP surgeries are a great place. People can, you know, they, they are confidential The conversations. Uh, in churches, we need pillars, people in the community the victims can go to and speak out to. And so funding them and creating those channels for uh, of communication, where people can go and have trusted conversations, is really important. Because just going and saying um, I'm going to go and uh, expose this person, you know, sometimes what happens is that in between the police investigating that person, if the if the perpetrator is extremely violent that's when that, the, the victim will be killed. So it's really important that you gradually get some out of the situation. You can't just let them expose themselves to possibly even more harm. So you've got to really think about who are the champions, who are the trusted voices in society that we can get victims to go and speak to. That's a really important program, I think, that we need to get there. We need to also, we need to give the police more training and more ability to spot domestic violence. And we need to change the law about what happens with, with um, perpetrators. Because sometimes, I mean, this one is—it's quite controversial when I say it—but as in child abuse, there can be a circular behaviour. So people who have suffered it themselves then can become the perpetrators, and I think it's really important that we break that circle. So I think when um, perpetrators, or if they are charged, they have to be given access, in my view, to actually revisit their own behaviour and therapy to go through to understand and try and get them to reform their behaviours rather than you know them understand where they need to understand their own behavior. so i think you have to work with the victims as well as the uh, the abusers and i know that gets quite controversial for a lot of people find that quite controversial but i really do think we need to break the cycle
0: absolutely i agree with you 100 percent. and also we need to break the side the silence cycle because uh, this is what it is you know these people the perpetrators if they think they are going to be exposed in their community and if they think that then they will be uh, object of shame i think they will you know stop doing what they do i mean in, in my case uh, uh, unfortunately i had my father was violent when i was 14 and i i threatened him to denounce him you know and i said you know i could uh, break it, the image that the community has about you you know about this perfect uh, uh, member of the community he it didn't stop the psychological abuse but it stopped the the physical one so i think we, maybe we should find the way i don't know how maybe you can have a good idea about that in order to uh, expose this expose the perpetrators so don't 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 let them think that they are the above, above the law they can well, get away. The,
1: pro- the problem is that um, a lot of women have is that uh, when you step forward, or, or mainly women, I mean, because I, I, I don't ever want to forget that there are men who suffer from domestic violence too, but the majority are women. So um, the other thing is when you go to police, the fact that you can go to court and your private life is dragged through the courts or, you know, it's the same as rape uh, uh, allegations, you know, women shouldn't have to relive that. I remember when I was, um, when I first went to the police and they said, oh, well, you know, what you need to do, Gina, is, is write down all the times and dates and everything. And I'm saying, going, ah. you know, I blocked them out. Why would I try and why do I want to relive all those times and dates? I don't take notes, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous the way you treat it. There needs to be much more sensitivity when women come forward and complain about domestic violence. And also we have to be able to 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 be, conscious in our communities that domestic violence is not a myth it's not it is the last taboo and it's out there one in three women i mean that's a figure it's extraordinary uh, experiencing some level of domestic violence in a relationship and not just in marriage but in a relationship and you know your neighbor knows your neighbor can hear you know we have to it's not it's not curtain twitching it's about saving someone's life in, you know, we have to be able to also, those people to be able to be conscious that you have a responsibility to your neighbor. You have a responsibility if you, you hear um, a mother abusing a child next door, shouting, I'm going to, you know, whatever it is you hear, you should be able to speak up about it because silence is not an option. Wherever we are seeing something wrong, silence is not an option. And I think we have to see that more as a, as a civic duty to speak up. And in the case of domestic violence, it's everywhere. I mean, one of the statistics that I find very, very worrying, because I've been working on this now for 16, since I became a survivor, I've I've been working with different charities and projects and policy making. But one of the things we discovered three or four years ago now, so back in, we noticed the first statistics about 2018, 2017, 2018. But there's a huge increase in violence against young women on university campuses. And there is a huge increase in misogynistic behavior on university campuses. And it's incredibly worrying. It's really, really worrying. And that's when we started talking about the signs for for young women to um, start, you know, learning the signs of coercive behavior. But it's really worrying what's going on.
0: Absolutely. Whenever we see
1: something wrong, you know, I said, we need to step up and do something. And even in a crisis, when I saw the number of people the, the tragic number of people who were dying, not seeing their family, not, you know, going in an ambulance. And that, the, the ultimate point for me was when there was a little boy called Ismail, the 13 year old boy who left in an ambulance and then died alone. He hadn't seen his parents for all the time he was in hospital, I think it was nearly two weeks. And I thought, how can people be dying in so, such tragic circumstances? Not just for the person dying, but for the families afterwards, because they have the grief of losing somebody, but then the guilt of not saying goodbye to them, not hearing from them, not hearing their last wishes. So I thought, what can I do? What can I do? And that's always my thought, what can I do? So I, I launched something called Messages of Love, which is a uh, sort of online sort of um, digital memory box where you can record um, messages, wishes, because, you know, I'd leave a different message to my um, a daughter than I would to my son. And also I thought, well, this is what I was doing on the time when, when the threats against me were the worst. I actually did write letters and recorded messages to in my three children, my eldest daughter who has special needs, and my two younger children and my husband and I have to say I kept adding the ones to my husband it turned out more into a manual an instruction manual I think than an actual message of love of you know this is the favorite things they like this is what you know I ended up adding to it 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 became ridiculous his ones which was quite funny when I sort of showed him afterwards but uh, you know and I thought well I want to be able to give people who might be at that time in hospital on their own, they've still got their devices, you know, and rather than just FaceTime in an open ward, they might want to say something privately, leave in case, just in case. Um, And also wills, that's a really important thing. So I built and launched and got funded and and got the guys, the teams together and built this platform messages of love. And I offer offer it free of charge because I don't want people to think about credit cards or, you know, it's a little bit that I can do to hopefully help some people but then I started thinking from a really practical point of view our will laws in the UK haven't changed since 1837 which is yeah. crazy so archaic so out of date so difficult um and uh, to satisfy in in a pandemic um it needs to be brought up to date so then I have a campaign going where I'm trying to change the will laws to say that people can use technology digital signatures video conferencing just so that it can be made legal because very importantly again being a parent if you don't have guardianship arrangements in your will the courts in the worst cases can decide that your child or your children go into care or who they live with which is absolutely shocking but they have that power if you don't have guardianship arrangements in your will or you don't leave them in your wishes so all these sorts of things I think are really urgent so I think we all need to look at the time you know what is it can we do what can we do to try and make things better at the time
0: yeah no it's a brilliant idea so you have a website messageoflove.co.uk
1: yeah messages of love messagesoflove.co.uk and it's lit and it's free you know anybody's worried and if you don't need it in the future you just delete it because what I'm worried about now is um, I think in the UK in particular we have such incompetence in our government that many people I speak to, the experts who really understand and the professors and people who are talking are really worried about a second wave. Um, they're worried about um, a second wave that could hit when we also have um, increase in other diseases because of winter, whatever. But you know, it could be worse than the first one, but let's hope it doesn't happen. But the reality is the people who know are fearful. And because of that, I really want to try and change all of this before. So messages of love is really important that, that this carries on. And I will carry it on for as long as it's needed.
0: Oh, a wonderful idea. And I love that you you never stop. You always <laughs> have something. <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. My, my husband says
1: I'm a um a mental and physical fidget. And if the <laughs> ants could speak, I'd be on my knees, lying on the floor, talking to them. And he's probably right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Seriously, I think you're great. I mean, absolutely great. And also, I I loved what I saw on BBC. I saw that you recently met one of uh, your uh, trolls online, your abuser, and I, I thought, how brave is this woman? You know, to just go there and sit really calmly in front of a man who was abusing her online for so long, and it was brilliant because in front of you, he completely change behavior. So he wasn't anymore the aggressive, you know, uh, troll online, but he was a normal uh, father, I think, you know, who was complaining about his life and he was actually apologizing with you.
1: You know, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time over the last three or four years traveling around the country to parts of the of the country who either voted leave or I know i wouldn't particularly be welcomed and i go out and try and talk to people because i think we have to talk we have to work that much harder and and when people see that you are listening to them and you acknowledge their pain and suffering you can actually then move on together because we have to acknowledge where pain comes from so you know it's that old saying hurts people hurt people and so that's why i go make that extra effort and Even since that interview, Alan, it's very bizarre because my husband's called Alan, and when they told me I was meeting a troll called Alan, I was sort of yeah, it was a bit strange. But um, he and I still communicate now, and so we, you know, I I, we we we've carried on our conversations. He is wonderful, and he he tells me quite often what his son's up to, what he's up to, and you know, in the pandemic, for example, he got very ill, and I sent them some medicine. But you know, it's 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 a heart I know, and mind I know, I've changed. And that to me is the greatest achievement that I could make is to help somebody to heal, but also help them to think of others in a different way.
0: No, this is really beautiful. Thank you for being (laughs) so great, really. Because this is how everyone should be, you know, instead of hating others, even not even knowing their life, you know, you should just, you know, be open and approach them with love and with respect. And this is what you do normally. So well, you have I'd a choice.
1: Think... I think you have a choice in life. So do you carry on hating and being angry? And if you like, um have uh, all the negative feelings inside of you, they're like a rat that gnaw away at you from the inside. And it just and or is it better to let go of it and free yourself from it? And then you can be much calmer. And that's what I try and do. I spend quite a bit of time being quiet. I sit and I think quite a bit about what is upsetting me. What am I hurting? What I might be getting, where is my anger starting to build up? How can I think through that? How can I let it go? Because I think that's a really therapeutic thing. You know, I say to my children, my my youngest daughter, who's now 13, you know, she came home and said, mom, you know, we're doing mindfulness lessons at school. And I have to say, I'm a terrible um, uh, one at school. They probably don't like me very much for this. But I sort of wrote back to the school and said, I don't want my daughter learning mindfulness or how to be listen to her own breath." What I want her to learn is to be mindful of others and for her to learn the the value of silence and actually thinking about how her own behaviors, not her own breath under so I was just sort of me thinking more oh, there's a different way of doing mindfulness than, than just saying you know well, you should think about yourself. I think it's about thinking about what it is that is making you less than you can be, and then working through that
0: I love it, and the first you know lesson we all have to learn is learn who we are without that you know we were just animals i guess you know we if we want to evolve and be better than that we have to start from knowing ourselves and what we do really the truth no not yeah, to lie the truth. that's when i think you know it, it's again it's not that difficult you know that um i, I say
1: it, it, it's one of those things you know when you if you think back about the fact that we are animals you know if you think back to it in, from an anthropological point of view our stomach is our second brain. You know, you had that saying, um, you know, you, you feel that sick feeling in your stomach when yeah. something's not right.
0: Yeah. You
1: should listen to that because that normally means something isn't right. And that yeah. oh, the voice in your head, you know, listen to your, your inner voice is a very powerful thing and your inner conscience is a very powerful thing. But also that feeling in the pit of your stomach, you should listen to those things because they're there for a reason. And what happens is we sort of stop it because there's so much noise outside and so many people telling us how we should live our lives, who we should be, how we should look. We forget to listen to our own voice and actually revisiting your own voice on a regular basis reminds you, as you say, to be who you are and remember who you are. Because that is, every one of us is unique. That is the most extraordinary thing in life is that every single one of us is different. And every one of us is unique. I mean, how incredible is that? And you know, why become like others? We should stay who we are.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. I I mean, to me, it's shocking how people can, you know, discriminate by the color of the skin, the religion on people who wants us to be all the same. Why is that? You know, diversity is the key for a better society. I I strongly believe in that, so I I totally agree with you. But seriously, knowing you better now, and after I read your life and your book, Rise, that is uh, amazing. I can't really believe about all the abuse you were, uh, you know, victim of. So I I think that maybe the real uh, guilty um, persons, there were these journalists and tabloids who were always trying to put on fire, on fire, and you know, and, and they, they, they were kind of uh, trying to, to really uh, unleash this people against you. What do you think about that?
1: I, my view is that we have a world where we have, uh, not just in the UK, very much in the UK, but around the world, but in the UK, we have people in positions of power who have an ideological um, bent towards the right. And they're using their positions of power to divide and conquer. And one of the things they're doing is to is to, if you like, to stir up old hatreds and the whole politics of othering is how they come to power. And it is actually how I think they've come to power. And and to me, the biggest regret is that they are the people in power now and that I'm not sure that uh, society is going to benefit from our the political class and the media we have because the conflicts of interest are there in the funders of those of the political parties um, of the owners of the newspaper you know they all come together they are all in the power estates if you like and they dominate the conversations and the consciousness of our nation and unless they are more responsible and go back to being tolerant, and getting us our society back to being the Britain, you know, we all love so much, then I do fear of what will happen in the future. Because the more they bring in this, or they continue this politics of othering, and division, then the more people will suffer. And I am worried. I'm worried because I speak to People in the Polish community. I speak to people in the Asian community, um, Black community. You know, I, I try to speak to all minorities, and it's there. They are suffering, and the increase in violence and discrimination is there. Is also an increase in um, discrimination and outing of people from other sexual orientations as well. That's also on the increase. So the politics of othering and the, the obe- um, being sort of aided and abetted by certain media and certain people with money is definitely there. It it, it is in our society. And I don't think it's going to go away anyway. it's not going to go away anytime soon, unless we, the people fight up for it, because I don't see that we have political leadership that is going to put us where we are. I mean, I hope our new political leader in in the Labour Party will, but I'm still not sure. I'm not sure yet on that. But I think we have to, if politicians won't, then we need to reclaim the country we want, because they have a different agenda. I mean, I've said in the past, and i say it again, I think they're using the island of, that we live on of Great Britain as a sort of ideological laboratory to try out their own agenda. And I do fear that's what's happening.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. We have to show that public opinion is no more willing to follow this, uh, you know, hate agenda, and we want to change uh, the way this country is is run. You're right, absolutely. So, what do you think about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry that they had to move country, you know, because of this? Basically, do you think they they did right or?
1: I find it quite difficult to, to comment on that because I don't know the story and I don't know what really happened. Um and, and I have until I know more, I find it very difficult. But I think it's um I would I would have liked them to have stayed. I mean that that was that's the only thing I think from my point of view. I think they could have been much more of the leaders. They could have been part of the leaders and the leading voices we need here for change because they have the power and the platform to do that. And as they were getting involved in domestic violence, in mental health, in education, there is so much to do here that I wish, and I hope that maybe one day they do return because I think they have the platform. They are one of the, the couples who have or people, both of them who have the voice to lead us to a better place.
0: I agree with you 100%. And you are one of these voices as well. And I hope maybe one day I could see you. You know, in uh, the government. <laughs> Seriously, I mean. The, the... I,
1: mean I, I I I've been asked this so many times, and I, I have to say that I wouldn't operate in the peri- political parameters we have in place now. I'm no fan of being whipped. Can you imagine somebody telling me what to say to stay? Like, I just wouldn't last more than five minutes. <laughs> so, there's true. no point me being in politics, but. I don't see politics as being owned by politicians. Politics is policy, and policy is the way we live our lives. It affects everything from our drinking water, to our light streets, to our education. So we the people, have the, we have a civic duty to be involved in politics and policies, and so I can do that without being officially in politics. So Absolutely. I still do, I suppose, I do, I'm a political commentator in many ways, and I still will go out there and talk about things which are probably political, but I, I think we can all do that because I would change politics. This is a problem. I would change our our apparatus of government. I mean, I bring in things like I don't think we should have pro- professional politicians. I think you should be able to run for two terms and that's it. I don't think people should go into politics straight away. I think they should actually work first or have a career or do something else or you know be a parent, whatever it is. Just you know have some life experience before you go into politics. Um, and I would also ring fence. Areas and to make sure they're not political footballs because it's always struck me as odd how you really deep seated problems can be solved in a three year cycle because you know we have five year elections, but really policies only run for three years because then they spend a couple of years or a year or two trying to get ready to fight the next, you know, campaign for the next election. So, how can you solve really deep seated problems in such a t- short timetable? So, I would ring fence things like education, the NHS defence and say, I'm sorry, but they are cross party 10 year plans, like select committees, they're not political footballs. And you know, so these are things that I know uh, upset quite a lot of politicians in different parties, because it means that they won't have the same hold on power as they have now, because they're basically almost jobs for life, sometimes. Um, yes, so and fun. I just don't think that's right.
0: But Gina, it's a pleasure to listen to your political advice. And, uh, and I, I really admire you what, for what you do. I would love to go on for another hour. <laughs> but I think now is the time for the final five questions. We always ask to... Oh, okay. Us, yeah. It's a fire up of questions. So try to be uh, as fast as you can. Okay. What is the thing that people would never guess about you just by looking at you? I used to
1: be a free climber.
0: Ah, oh, it's true, <laughs> I read about it in the book. <laughs> uh, which is your spirit animal? Oh, a panther, black panther. I love that, <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> and if you were a superhero, which would be your superpower?
1: Oh, wow, um, to make people kind
0: very important one well done what did you learn from your uh, last relationship
1: my last relationship
0: yeah your last wow. relationship and also your uh, ongoing... well i'm still in it so
1: it's our 15th wedding anniversary next tuesday um or this month so uh i've learned that you need to have somebody who respects you for who you are wonderful
0: And the last question, Gina, what is the meaning of life?
1: To be the best you can be and love as hard as you can.
0: Oh my God, love it. oh thank you so much Gina for being here with us unfortunately we are on different places on zoom I
1: know well hopefully we'll be able to meet one day I mean it's been it's so kind of you and it's been lovely chatting with you
0: thank you it's lovely for me really thank you for your time because I know you're very busy thank you for sharing your story with us bye Gina bye bye Thank Bye you for, for watching unleashed the Game Changers. I really hope you admire Gina and love her as much as I do. And if you didn't in the, in the past, I hope you change your mind because it's never too late to change your mind. She's a wonderful person and I think she's a real role model and a real game changer. Please share with your friends, leave a comment and don't forget to subscribe. Bye.